Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. talk about something that's, um, well, by definition, personal, autobiographical memory. It's, I think, in the, I, maybe in the course of that I called it episodic memory. Um, but by definition, we're talking, we're basically talking about episodic memory today. I know probably the one you downloaded says autobiographical there. That's kind of redundant considering that's the title. Um, there'll be references to semantic memory. But by definition, almost everything about autobiographical memory is, is episodic, right? So there's memory of, there certainly are semantic aspects to autobiographical memory. There certainly are things about emotion, for example, that we wouldn't necessarily pin to yeah, episodic memory, but we're really talking things that are episodic here. They're, they're, they're self-referential, they're things about your life. So we can't ignore the semantic aspects of autobiographical memory, but we basically will. <laughs> so we, if you want a complete picture, I don't think you can ignore it, but I think today I want to really concentrate on the episodic angle. Okay, so that's by way of introduction. Um, now, how do we typically study semi- or episodic memory? We typically do that with, say, a list of words. I mean, that's the classic approach. Going back to Ebbinghaus, I mean, he's so fine, he used constant about constant trigrams, but it's the same idea. Autobiographical memory is hard to study in a lab. Right? Because I can't make you live in a lab for a couple of years. Right? And then film the whole thing. Well, you can, but that's called Big Brother. You shouldn't watch such crap. You want to watch something that's good? Top Chef, as I mentioned. So, it'd be interesting if you actually could do something with it. Yeah, considering they're being filmed for the five months, they all live together in, in the TV studio. There's something you can actually do there. It's all self-reports, right? If I ask you how, for example, when I ask you what you had for breakfast, which in fact, the reason that Tolbing always uses that example is that Galton, going back a long time ago, back the 1850s, Galton was the guy who actually started really trying to study episodic memory, memory, and he started it by using what he called the breakfast method, um, which of course later was a John Hughes film. That was the breakfast club, I'm sorry. Um, so what he would do actually was get really detailed reports from people about what they had for breakfast. And he'd find out how they cooked things, how they did stuff, whatever, and then he'd test them later um, so we'd ask them right away, right after they had breakfast, then he'd ask them a couple of weeks later. So he really started this whole... <coughs> Galton was a pretty amazing guy. Darwin's cousin. Um, and he was, he was pretty important in the history of psychology, biology. Also probably a racist, but probably everybody was back then. Um, said some pretty nasty things, but everybody was in the 1850s. It was weird not to be a racist. I remember that historically. Anyway... It's hard to check on the reliability of the responses. So what if even in Galton's experiments, or data collection, they call them experiments, studies, I guess, um, how do we know that the person isn't lying to us? We really don't. So if I ask you something like, you, how many people here remember their first day of school? Put your hand remember your first day of school. It's just me. 
remember the first part of that. Okay, that's good. But do you know that that's accurate? There's a picture of it, so I got to check that out. Okay, so you know what you were wearing. Good. Yeah. I know what I was wearing, I think. Right? I think I know, because I remember looking down and thinking, my God, Mom made me wear these pants I hate. <laughs> and this yellow button-up shirt. It was 1970. Where was the style I looked like a really, like, what's well, actually 1969, sort of kindergarten, right? Or 70. No, it was 70. Yeah. And I had, like, these black pants that had, like, I looked like I was going to go play golf. <laughs> and I'm thinking, if schools, if you have to dress like this for school, I don't want to go. And then I got lost coming back from the bathroom and I cried. Um, which still happens to me today. I was crying this morning. So, and that was in the house. So, the thing is, I remember that really well. You may remember stuff really well, except that we don't really know you. You can actually check and say, oh, yeah, that's, I, that's the clothes I remember wearing. I can't even check that. I can tell my mom that, and she says, yeah, that's why you look so cute. So she's determined, she, she's pretty sure that that's the clothes I was wearing, so there's a liability, except that my mom believes everything I tell her. Everyone in my family's like that. They believe everything I say when it comes to things about memory. And, you know, facts. And my brother said about three years ago, you know, we've, we've never entertained the possibility that he could have been making this shit up for the last 40 years. I don't think he's entertained the possibility. Dan does not talk like that. <laughs> um, so yeah, I seem reliable. So because I just say things with authority, this is my job. But who knows if I'm, if I'm right? It certainly feels like it. I, don't, I can tell you, I don't think I'm lying. But I don't know that actually that was what I was wearing. If my mom had kept some kind of weird diary, written down everything I wore every day, which is weird, <laughs> then we could check it. But there's the diary approach. That's basically how you study this stuff. Is you get someone to basically keep a diary. Okay? So a person keeps a diary of important events that happened, and they pick an event a day, or a couple events a day. And they write them down. And then you ask them later, what happened? And there's also what's called the keyword approach. Um, the keyword approach is this. I give you a, a random list of words each day, like four words. And they're different words every day. And I say, okay, with each, I want you to pick, say, three events for today. Here are three words. Associate them with those words. And then later, I give you the word. So if one of the words was, uh, I don't know, something outside here. Tile, I saw a ceiling. Tile, that's why I went with the ceiling. So tile. And then the thing you want to associate with tile is, uh, 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 I don't know, it was something you did today. Uh, took the dog for a walk and it was very cold. It was minus 25. There you go. And you sit there and go, tile, mm-hmm. minus 25. Dog, walk, dog. Blah, blah, blah. February 9th. So then later I say to you, Tile. And then you say, uh, that was February 9th, 2015, I walked the dog through the cold. So that's another way to do it. Either of those have been tried. You can see these are going to have their limitations. They're somewhat artificial. We have to, you have to randomly, almost, I say randomly, you have to pick events. 
Are, is every event get the same salience? No. Walking the dog when it's cold out is something that, if you have a dog, you do. On the other hand, there might be other stuff like, I don't know, some huge event in your life. So today the word is light bulb. It's light bulb. Had my first child. <laughs> you know, that's kind of bigger. More important. So there's a lot of limitations here. But there's some interesting data nonetheless. So we can talk about that. But remember, there's, there's some clear limitations as all. Well. Make sense? Questions? Do you understand how those two methods work? One of them is going to be the diary approach. And one of them is going to be the keyword approach. They're very similar. Very similar. And these are kind of classic pieces of data. The first one comes from uh, Linton. Linton's a really interesting person. Uh, she's Marigold Linton. First of all, that's a great name. Meaning Marigold's great. Um, she's won a whole bunch of um, awards for uh, helping uh, Native Americans get into science. She actually heads an initiative about uh, getting Americans, Native Americans, so Aboriginal people, right? Uh, in, into the sciences, which is really kind of a cool thing. And she's also a cognitive psychologist. Uh, it's too bad she's also solved crimes, because it would make her almost a superhero. And you're going to see why in a second, because what she did is for like six years recorded events every day. She kept a diary of her own life. So she then would date the events each day. Okay? So... 2015, February 9th, minus 25, I took the dog for a walk. <clears throat> so she's always got a date on it. Now each day, once she had, I think it was once she had about a year done, <clears throat> which is kind of amazing, she starts randomly sampling a few, I think it was five a day. She randomly pick out five cards. I think they were on index cards, if I'm not mistaken, but this a long time. And they would have the date on the back, and then she would have to recall the event. So she's February 9, 2015, went, took the dog for a walk, and it was minus 25. So and you might think, well, that seems kind of hard to do. I don't think it was easy. Right? Think about this. Some of these events would be unpleasant. So you randomly choose, you know, March 4th, 1986. So 1979. Oh, that's the day that, you know, some horrible thing happened. I recall that. So it also was better times than unpleasant. So she's studying herself. We can take her word that she's being realistic about her, like her reports were good, because we can just figure that she wrote stuff down accurately, but so the, the veracity of, of the events originally is, is probably okay. She forgot about 5% a year. So... <coughs> 5% one year, and then now she's got 95% left, so now she forgets 5% of 95%. You see what I'm saying? So it's going to go down with the classic forgetting. This is one of the first attempts since Galton to try to do this. So 
lot of credit to her. That's it's just neat. Plus, she's got a great name. Now, another person who tried this is Wagner. It's got an extra, a couple extra A's in there. Wagner. It's probably Dutch, right? Maybe German. Could be German. Too. You usually see two A's in German. That's more of a Dutch thing. Right? Oh. Yeah, I think. What do I know? Though? Similar procedure. Uh, recorded one event per day. The interesting thing about Linton is, Linton is sometimes she records like four and five events a day. Whereas Wagner recorded one a day and, and was very specific about it. I'm not going to say anything bad about Linton because it, it impresses me that anybody can carry on a project that long. Right? Whereas Wagner or Wagner or whatever, uh, uh, um, one event per day, who, what, when, and where. So who, so for example, I uh, think one of them is, uh, goes to see a exhibition of, of Da Vinci stuff at a, at a museum. So it's like, who, Leonardo Da Vinci, what, I don't know, paintings, whatever the hell it was, when, whatever the day was, where, and it was at a museum in Milan. This is what Wagner's doing. I'm just going to say Wagner. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing the hell out of his name. Uh, he didn't have access to his file. This is kind of neat. He gave it to a colleague. He would write it down again on a little card. He would try to process it, memorize it, and give it to his buddy. So he couldn't cheat. I'm not saying Linton cheated, but hey, it's possible. I doubt it. So, in fact, there were some things in Wagner's report that he kept out really personal stuff because he didn't want to embarrass his colleague. And you can really keep the personal stuff. You wouldn't want to tell other people. You know? And you can all make up your own example of what that might be. Okay, I'm not going to. So he records the events, he dates them. Uh, he's got a power function is what he finds. In other words, the classic forgetting curve. The cues he would give himself would be one of who, what, when, where. And then he has to fill in the other four other three. So he's got to fill in the other three. This was apparently really taxing for him to do because he would do it he would do his best, so he would sometimes spend hours working on a single event. So you give him Milan, and he's got to go, okay, Milan. Uh, uh, was it the Da Vinci exhibition? I uh, saw this painting, and what day was it? And then he's got to work. So he could only do five a day. He started, same with Linton, started doing the recall after he had recorded a year's worth of events. A year? Yeah, sometimes he didn't work, because right, he went until he had 400 events he could recall. So, um, it's a little, sometimes he would record two events a day. If, it was some, if like a couple of interesting things happened, basically. A couple of things out of the ordinary, not like had dinner, like you can't use that. Right? Breathed oxygen doesn't work. <laughs> Maddie? Uh, is this cue stuff different from his diary? 
No, he's st- this is still really kind of a, a the, the cues he's using. It's different from the diary thing in that the diary thing is you'd be given like when Lynn did this stuff, she looked at the date and that was her cue. So the cue here is just one of could be the date, could be the who, what, when, where. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So it's any of those. Yeah. It's not like the cue word approach, which is okay. a, an unrelated word, which is like clock. Okay. And then you go, eight lobster. So apparently this is really hard on him. Once you get 400, though, he did this for six years. See, the thing about this, actually, this is not expensive research to do. So this would be something you could do even without a grant. The thing about this is it's, and you're testing yourself, so probably getting through ethics is easy. Um, the hard part of this is that apparently it was taxing at a level that it would just... He wanted to do more than five a day. I'll do as many as I can. And it was like, five is my limit. Isn't that also just kind of legal, though? Like, you're not going to do that every day. That's the discipline of having to do it every day, correct? It's going to be a day when you wake up and you've had too much to drink or something and you don't feel well. Or you're just sick or you're just having a shitty day. Well, I mean, would that actually change your... Yeah, but that's all going to balance out over time. Error cancels, right? So yeah, he finds a classic sort of power function that we get a classic forgetting curve of events, which is nice. He also found the best recall was for happy stuff. So it was an effective emotion, and the big effect was happy memories were best remembered. So it may be the case that using yourself as your own subject is not the best approach, but it's a hard thing to do with anybody. Like, to get someone to commit, like you guys, honors thesis people here, these guys are running subject uh, testing participants right now, and you think it's hard getting someone to come in for 35 minutes to play video games or look at pictures of people with tattoos? Try, okay, you got to, for a year, okay, not to, for, five, for 10 years, uh, I want you to write things down and email to me. And then half a point credit on your short side. It's going to be a tough sell. It's going to be a tough sell. So this is hard to do without using yourself, really. So the keyword method has been used quite a bit. This is what you do use other people. How do you do this? Basically, you start with someone who's a graduate student in your lab, and they're going to be there for five years, six years maybe, right? Seven if they're slow. Um, can't be longer than seven. They usually make you go home and you get some lovely party gifts, I think. And I think you get a rice aroni. Um, San Francisco, true. So you give a list of words and then have the subject associate the words with autobiographical events, as I talked about, and then you give the cues. So this has been done, sort of longitudinal studies. And there's a classic thing that happens here, and that's called the reminiscence bump. Sounds like the name of some bad dance in the 70s. So the reminiscence bump. What is this? This is between the age of about 18 and 23, you remember stuff really well. So if you're thinking about... Looks like this. So you get sort of forgetting. So let's say you're testing someone for a long time, for, for 10 years. And you, this has been done. 
you basically find people that oftentimes, if this is going to be done over a 10 or 15 year period, again, you start out with somebody who's working in your lab, and then you just have them do this over the years, and they're committed to it because they're also doing science, and they keep doing it when they've moved away. And then you ask them what the keywords, how they do, and the most recent stuff looks like that, and then it starts to decline. So this is age when the memory was encoded, okay? Declines, and it goes up and down. But this here is about 18 to about oh, 23. Okay, that's where you remember stuff in your life the best. That's a, it's a pretty reliable phenomenon. Diary approach, um, keyword, doesn't matter what. People remember events in their lives their autobiographical memory kind of peaks in their early 20s, late teens. So what? Well, I've got some examples, some ideas, and then maybe you guys might have some other ideas. Um, your memories tend to be happier, maybe, at the time of your life. It's possible. Your coding processes are better. Look, most people, that's at the peak of your schooling for most people. It's right in that sweet spot where you're ending high school, starting, and you finish university, right? Or college or whatever. So this is where you're getting, you're really, you become basically a professional at going to school. You're really good at it. You're really good at studying and remembering. So we've also got, we talked today about sort of general cognitive decline that happens with age. This is right at your peak as well. So you're, you're, you've got your peak sort of probably encoding-wise, plus you're really good at the strategies of knowing how to remember things. Put those two things together, probably do okay. It also could just be big events. This is when you move out of your house. This is when you go for the first time. This is when you meet... Probably your first series, you marry off, the person you end up getting married to, you often meet at this age. Um, this is when you might have your first kid, it's when you buy your first car. Right in that area. You put all that together, those are huge events, and huge events would be remembered by. Wendy? Um, I was wondering if it could be that that's kind of the time where you start making important decisions by yourself. Yeah, I think that's part of it too. I mean, because you start making decisions like, where will I go to school? Or like, where will I, what kind of career will I have? Yeah, yeah, and I think you got all that stuff put together. All that stuff put together. So I don't know of any others, but do you have any other ex possible explanations? Anything? Is it? I don't know, that's ones I can pick up, that's what people say again. Uh, that bug you for men and women, puberty truly ends, so. I mean, that's, I think that's the thing you sort of want to say here is you become an adult. Yeah. And you're starting to make, as when you said, decisions by yourself. It might be something biological. It's conceivable. Um, that's a possibility. I've heard that before, but I, I don't know how that would work, but that certainly does coincide with it. There's no doubt about that. Other thoughts? Yeah. Well, I'm thinking, it seems like some of these reasons that you put the way, I don't know, we are now kind of, like people probably aren't having kids at 23. Not, not so much anymore. So if it was something like big events, could this bump move over? See, this like is, if it's something like schooling, 
Wouldn't it stay? Yeah, we're not a natural experiment here. We, we could do this. Um, if anybody, maybe five of you, want to commit to doing this, and we can do this all <laughs> together for the next 10 years, uh, it's conceivable we could look at this. Um, so we do it all together, and we all get equal authorship, and we get one publication out of all this work. Great. But yeah, there's a natural experiment there. Because people are, say, having kids or getting married, that the age of that's getting a lot, lot later. Right? There's no doubt about that. But they're still finishing university. There's still independence. There, there's your first proper job, you know, where you actually have a paycheck and you look at it and go, I can buy things. <laughs> Not just one where you go, oh, well, your money. An actual paycheck, that's a great moment, by the way. First one you go, ah, you got to spend it all. Like it's because you have to buy shoes and food, but and shelter, you know, things like that. But the first time you actually get a paycheck, and then you go, "What's all this stuff they've taken off?" That's tax. You didn't used to make enough money to pay tax, son. So there's still a lot of things happening, but it is true that we there's been this. We talked about that in 4007 the other day, right? It's sort of uh, what's called again that later adulthood thing. I forget the name. Yeah. So I think that kind of thing, there is something to that. Yeah. I'm kind of partial. I like this and this. I don't know if I'd buy memories or happier. But that may just be my own personal experience. I mean, I like university. Like undergrad, it's fun. It was relatively easy for me. But I don't know if my memories are happier. You know. Walking around going, I can't find a girlfriend, things like that. Oh, oh. Ah, don't alter that, I'm fine. It's okay. I met somebody. Wendy. Uh, so you were on a campfire one night, and there was a ton of adults there, and they were all saying that their happiest time of life was between 28 and 32. Okay. Perhaps I'm not okay with that. I don't know what that would be. You know? Yeah. Like, I don't think I can put a, put a place on that. It's like when they started to get really settled down and their kids See, there you go. Yeah. I mean, and I can think of like being, when I started graduate school, it was pretty exciting. And scary, but exciting. I was 23 then, so that was neat. I was I met a girl. She's upstairs right there. <laughs> okay, so I don't know what it is. There's a lot of, we could literally do a little experiment in nature here. There is a, the idea of adolescence being continued being elongated is certainly out there. That's, that's something that's in the literature, the developmental literature, for sure. All right, I'm going to read you a bunch of words. Don't, just listen to them. Don't write them down, please. Pin. Inoculation. Haystack. Sharp. Pointy. Knitting. Phonograph. So, Autobiographical memories are like a narrative. We can look at them that way. Narrative is actually a word they use in English classes for story. Um, which drives me nuts. Well, there's a narrative. You mean a story? Um, I think. Got any English professors in the hall? Maybe they can put them. Yeah, I don't see anyone in the hall. I thought maybe they'd be lurking around, you know, getting some tips on how to really lecture. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, she enjoyed that more than anybody. I think that's good. Um, when, you, when you tell a story, you recall certain events 
What do you get right when you tell a story? It's like, and it's, you know, when you're doing autobiographical memory, you're telling a story about yourself. Right? You're recalling a story about yourself, or you're recalling a story about you and your friends to each other, whatever. Uh, very little. <laughs> Surprisingly little. You get the gist of the story. Right? You get the... But do you remember, like, specific things? No. Always reminds me of that episode, like, Simpsons, and I can't remember which one it is, when Homer's recalling something, but he's talking to an alligator, and Marge is yelling at him, and the alligator has a clock hat on, and Homer's certain that's what happened. It's actually an article a friend of mine posted on Facebook yesterday, literally, uh, yeah, yesterday afternoon, about how uh, people forcing people to do uh, eyewitness testimony, I'm sorry, forcing people to, to, to uh, admit to committing crimes. The neat thing was this was not actual criminals. These were university students in an experiment. How does, what? How does an experiment like that work? Take people into the lab, talk to their parents, this, and you give them the students' notice, the, the subject's notice. You talk to the parents, and you find out what's happened in their life that's really big. And then you say, have they ever had any criminal charges against them? Or done anything criminal? Of course, the parents say, no, okay, perfect, thank you. And then you have them recall a couple of events, and you say, oh, good, because I've talked to your parents about two events. One of them is, and you make up something, or you live in an actual event, the parents said, and the other one is that time you threw the rock at that kid and cracked his head over. And then, of course, I don't, I don't remember that. Come on, you did it. You do exactly what they do in police interrogations, and people just break. And go, yeah, I did it. I can't believe it. I threw the rock. And I said, no, you didn't. Debriefing now. Now it's debriefing. This is an experiment. <laughs> so we're not really good at specific stuff. In fact, we can even be told stuff enough and we believe it. People think we repress memories. So this is a Freudian idea, the idea of repression, which immediately makes me go, because I hate Freud. Not a fan, not a fan. Yes, exactly. And if you don't agree with that, you are repressive. So the theory is always correct. Um, so the idea here with, with, with um, repressed memories is that really bad things happen and we, we, we push them away. Okay. And these tend to be things, <coughs> excuse me, when this was first, <coughs> I was going up my voice, when this was first uh, done in the uh, 80s, there was a book that came out called A Courage to Heal, or The Courage to Heal, sorry. and it was about how everybody's, about how to recognize that maybe you, there was, there was child abuse in your family, and how do you recognize this? Because maybe you've got sleep problems, or you get headaches now and then, or sometimes you're tired. You mean part of being an adult? So then people said, well, then obviously you have to be hypnotized to remember the horrible, ritual, satanic abuse your parents did. Yeah. And then, of course, people did this. Um, now, there's never been a case of ritualistic satanic abuse ever, 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 ever. Does it happen? 
There's never been a piece of evidence for it except someone's so-called recall memories or repressed memories that have been unearthed by therapy. Now, the problem is there really is child abuse. And that's kind of... You're not, you don't want to say that doesn't happen because we know that happens. I also don't like the word abuse because that means you could just use them and it's okay. I hate that word, so I just want to throw that out there. We all know what it means. I just don't like it. But the point is, most people remember things like that. And they'd rather not. I don't think it's pleasant. Most people won't tell stuff about it because of embarrassment or because of threats. Or fear that people wouldn't believe them. Right? Bill Cosby. So, Gianni Gomeshi. I could go on. That's two famous ones right there. Recently, right? People were always saying, no one's going to believe me. Who the hell am I? This is a famous person. I'm nobody. And then a few people come out and they're like, happened to me too. Right? And as I mentioned before, planting false memories is exceedingly easy. Um, a similar one to the, though not as intense with the interrogation kind of approach, as, as, as the one I was just talking about, was some stuff Elizabeth Loftus has done, the Lost in the Mall experiment, which is a really, it's a classic, and it's a little less unpleasant. For the By the way, once that, that the terror was talking about, the interrogation, they stopped almost immediately when they, when they realized it worked. They were like, okay, we can't do this anymore. So good on you. But the loss in the mall experiment, similar approach. Um, you say to somebody, you got to call their parents and say, was your kid ever lost in a mall? Because a lot of people get lost in the mall. So, I mean, I remember being lost in the mall with my brother. And all you have to do is go find a security person and say, we're lost. My name is David Broadback. My dad's name is Rick. My mom's name is Leslie. Can you pay them, please? Well, my brother cries. <laughs> I didn't like being lost, but I knew exactly how to get out of it. There's got to be somebody who works here and you have a microphone. But what you do is you find someone who hasn't lost them all. You talk to the student's parents, and then you say to them, okay, we have some events in your life. One of the things that is probably pretty salient for you is the time you were lost in the mall. It was when you were five years old on a family trip. Really? I was lost in the mall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was talking to your mom and dad about it. Uh, and this happened, and this happened, and it was at this mall. And you just pick a mall in a town that they went on a trip when they were five or six years old. Well, most people are like, I, I, really, I really don't remember this. But then you have them come back in a week. So if they come back in a week, I want to talk to you again. They come back in a week, and they're like, I totally remember being lost in the mall now. <laughs> we're in Portland, Maine. I was actually lost in the mall in Portland, Maine. Um, and we go over to Warren's, the, and they, they got a whole story, and then you got to say to them, you know, you were never lost in the mall. No, I was, I remember it. No, we talked to your folks, you really weren't. People completely make this stuff up. You can implant a false memory, and that's not like, unlike, say, the, the child abuse crap. This is not someone you trust implicitly, which is therapist. Right? This is just some graduate student you met. And you're trying to get credit for intro psych. You should tell us something. We shouldn't be really relying a lot on confessions for things or criminal things. Also, eyewitness testimony probably is almost useless. Real evidence, you know, DNA, that's good. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm actually a security guard. Right. And um, I have to get 
uh, statements from people, and they're always like just a bunch of crap. Well, sure. Like they'll be like completely different. Yeah, and somebody's got to be wrong when everybody's yeah. different. Yeah. In fact, everybody's wrong but one guy. Probably everybody's wrong. Right? Yeah. And I mean, the problem is that the justice system still has this wonderful thing about eyewitness testimony. It's not really bad. It's very simple. For example, if I ask, ask you, how fast were they, show you a video of two cars hitting each other. And I say, how fast were the cars going when they hit each other? And if I change it to, how fast were the cars going when they snatched each other? Uh, the estimated speed goes up by 16 kilometers. Now, 10 miles an hour. Yeah. Oh, and you also report that there's broken glass and there's not. It's really pretty amazing. So can we tell the difference between false memories and real memories? That's the problem. <laughs> it's hard to. There's been some stuff with PET scans recently that looks a little promising. Um, that they somehow look different, but I don't think it's to the point where we can actually the false memory, real memory. So if you're to convict someone of something, you need evidence. And memories are one form of evidence, but they're exceedingly fallible, including confessions. There are ways to do confessions, to do interviews with, with the suspects properly. I'm going to talk to the group. <laughs> I love saying stuff like that. What our memories are reconstructed. At best, they're reconstructed. Okay. Questions with that? Can you know, I List words are going to come back up. Put your hand up if you would recognize these, one of these words, any of these words, like the word that I said, from the list that I gave before. Please don't look back on the list. That's cheating. There's no, this isn't an IQ test or something. Okay? Okay. Pin. Is that on the list? Okay, good. It was. Book. Okay, book was not on the list. You're doing really well. Uh, chair. Maybe chair. Chair was not on the list. Ceiling. Anybody get ceiling? Ceiling was also not on the list. Sharp. Yep, sharp was on the list. You're doing well. Pointy. Pointy was. Pointy was there. Yep. Haystack. That haystack was there totally. Needle. No. No, a needle wasn't there. Needle should have been there. Needle and a haystack, sharp needle, pointy needle. Inoculation, you get that from the needle. Phonograph has a needle. Remember, these are all the most highly associated words with the word needle. You can do this with a lot of things. You can do it with the word uh, sleep. So you can use tired, pillow, cover, bed. You can do it with bird and have feather, beak, uh, egg, fly. Just leave out bird. People constantly. By the way, don't feel bad if you said yes to this. This, this was a paradigm. This, this is the DRM paradigm, it's called. And this was developed by one of the developers by named Ronnie Rodiger, and he was giving a talk at a conference. There were 200 of us there at Canadian Society for Red Paper and Conference Science in 1995 at Halifax. And he said to the whole crowd, 200 of us, probably 150 of us PhDs, and he said, I'm going, in psychology, I'm going to implant a false memory in you now. And we're like, right. And he did this, and then he did the thing with like 40% of us, me included. Yeah, sure, needle. I actually once did this for a class, a grade 8 class, when I, I presented this, I was talking about science or something, or psychology or some such thing. 
The teacher got mad at me. She said, it was on the last meal. It was there. You've changed your slides. No, I didn't think so. Being weird, your students are freaking out. That was about 10 years ago. Eleven years old. No more than that, sorry. It was like, It's like 1998. It was here at the school was. Um, the Catholic school over there. It was closed now. Anyway, I didn't have slides. I had notes. So she told me I cheated. I said, no, I've done this talk a lot of times. She was very angry with me. <laughs> e, you know, and I'm not anybody's therapist here, and you didn't trust me implicitly. I just made you think the word needles are. All right. Whoops. Let's talk about, it's called flashbulb memories. Okay? These seem to be hyperactive memories, and they're super detailed, and they're almost all shared cultural experiences. But they're not as accurate as they seem. So they aren't necessarily shared cultural experiences. You might have one. Um, I have one from when we had our house fire a couple years ago. Right, I, I, I swear I can remember that whole thing completely. So that's not a shared cultural experience. That's just a big event in my life. Shared sure, family experience. Yeah, but I mean, it's not the whole culture. You know, I may have a lot of listeners to the podcast, but I wouldn't say that much of that. Um, I remember. I remember when you were born. I remember both the kids were. Those are huge events in my life. And the day I got married, the day I met my wife. And they seem very accurate. What exactly are we talking about with flashball memories, though? We're talking about things like Paul Henderson scoring the goal in 1972. <laughs> <laughs> Where were you? Where was I? Crestleven Public School, Toronto, Ontario, sitting right in front of, in a gym. Uh, and we got out of school to watch the game. It was at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, our time, 8 o'clock, Moscow time, 7 o'clock, whatever. And we actually all got to go down to the school. To, to the um, gym to watch the game on these um, uh, TVs they wheeled in on carts, black and white TVs. Um, if you've ever seen me, it was an ad a couple of years ago for Coke during the Winter Olympics in Vancouver, and they're showing all the things about hockey in Canada. I love that ad. And at the end it says, now they know whose game they were playing after Stefan won the gold medal. Beat the States! <laughs> I did that yesterday with my arm after we beat Boston, and I, I heard it. I'm considering it now a hockey injury. Um, so I'm watching the game, and I'm sitting on the floor in the gym, and Paul Henderson scores with 38 seconds left from Phil Esposito and Ivan Carboy, and we beat the Russians 6-5. to five. And I look over at the little girl beside me, and I hug her. And I'm in grade 2, you don't hug girls in grade 2, because that's where coolies come from. And that's how exciting it was. Except the girl I remember being there can't have been there. Because the girl I remember being, I think I told you guys this, is a girl I met who lived across the street from me in Sudbury two years later. It can't be her. It is impossible that Maria Kostakos, that's her name, was there. She lived in Sudbury. I was in Toronto. And the weird thing is, I met her years later just on campus at Western. It turned out she went to Western. I ran into a few of my old sort of elementary school friends from Sudbury. I moved to London when I was 12. And... I just ran into this girl. She said, Dave or David? Because I said, Maria. And we talked. And she said, I'm going to this party tonight. You should come. I said, okay. So I ran into her that night at the party. And, of course, it's 1980. It's, I don't know, first or second year, 84, 85. So what I remember now, in my 
flashbulb memory, which is clear as anything, like a picture's been taken, of Paul Henderson scoring that goal, me hugging a girl that can't have been there if she's now dressed in trendy 80s clothes. <laughs> and that's impossible! Because it was 1972 and she was 70, she wasn't even there! But it certainly seems like she was there. Oh man, it seems like she was there. And I remember afterwards, I remember us screaming, I remember, I remember this was game eight, game seven, they, a kid brought a transistor radio and we just sat in class and listened to the game. And for game eight, they said, and that was happening in every class, everywhere, in every place of work in Canada, so they just shut the country down. Except for my dad, who had to go to a meeting. Poor guy. He saw the replay that night. He already knew what happened. The whole world's going crazy. I was, I was on my way to here. Yeah. And I was in my car driving, and I, I didn't want to come here until the game was over, so I drove around the block a few times. Oh, I've done that. Yeah. I've done that. Those driveway moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was on Shannon Road when it was Nice. <laughs> um, I remember, you, maybe for some of you, it's a little more recent. It's for a hockey one. The 2002 gold medal, but, right, you might remember that when Mario Lemieux, uh, oh, that goal, where he just let the puck go through like that and with the Korean, he scored, it was beautiful. You might remember the one from last year, but that's only a year ago. Remember the one from 2010 when Crosby scored the winner in, in overtime. I remember that because it's the only time in my life when my whole family sat down and watched a hockey game together. Right? I think I, and I jumped up and I hit my head on the ceiling. I was so excited. That's I remember this in 2003. I know what we had for dinner then. We had spare ribs and rice and corn. I remember when the air raid siren went off mistakenly in Kingston in 1969 when I was a kid. It was a short circuit. And then we had for dinner that night. Because my mom was freaked out. She was like, because it was, it was a cold war. And the air raid siren went off mistakenly. And my mom was cooking pork chops. And she's freaking out. She, I said, what is it, mommy? Four years old. It's an air raid siren. I said, what does that mean? She said, the Russians are coming to bombs. <laughs> Excellent parenting mom. <laughs> and I'm like, well, okay, whatever. And I'm back to, you know, whatever the hell I was doing. Like reading some book. Because I was a weird kid. Um... John F. Kennedy being shot is something you may have heard your, your parents or grandparents talk about. Right? Um, that's the first one people talk about. It's probably true if you could talk to your um, maybe great-grandparents about like when the war ended. Right? I, don't, I don't mean the Gulf War. I mean World War II. My mom could, could talks about this. She was working on the Montreal Stock Exchange and how everything shut down and it came across the stock ticker, President Kennedy dead. I was in Woodbrook shop. There you go. And you, I bet you probably remember it clear as a bell, right? No. So your problem is, I mean, Princess Diana dying. I uh, was 97? Um, or 9-11. We remember where we are, it seems, and it seems like we remember all these things really well, except we probably don't. People remember, for example, seeing live on TV the second plane hit, except nobody saw that. People remember where they were when the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded in 1986. Except they can't remember seeing 86. You know why? Because most of them were at school or work. It happened at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. 
fact, I remember walking to class with my friend Diane. Sometimes you might see, if you follow me on Facebook, you might see a woman named Diane Peart comment on things. We were on our way to this personality class. And she said, oh, what's that, Dave? And I looked over at where the student center was. I said, oh, there's a bunch of other space shuttle. That's not interesting. Of course, 73 seconds later, it explodes. I remember getting home that night, and my dad was shoving the driveway. I walked up, and he says, space shuttle blew up. I said, oh, Dad, that's just not nice. Of course, it was true. And this, right, many of us remember this very clearly. I remember I was teaching a class in the University of Newfoundland, and how about 39 o'clock in the morning, except that's Eastern time. So it's like 10, 30, 11 o'clock. I came out of my class. People were freaking out. What's going on? My phone was beeping. It was like 10 messages from, from, from my wife. And she was sitting at home with John, our son. And I remember you couldn't get to CNN, the website. You couldn't get to it because it was so overloaded. Um, I got an email from my dad, which I still have which is a typical email that my dad would send, which just said, have you seen this plane shit? <laughs> dad was an amazing guy. Um, the thing is, people think, they remember, people think they remember seeing Kennedy get shot on TV. Nobody saw that. There weren't 24-hour news networks. It was a campaign, a pre-campaign stop. They remember maybe seeing Walter Cronkite say he was dead and getting broken up a little bit. Sure, that because they cut the live coverage, but nobody saw, you know there's a Pruder film? You know, back and to the left. You know when he gets his head blown off and you see Mrs. Kennedy reach for his part of his skull? No one saw that film until like 1970. You know why? It was classified. It was evidence. But everybody said, oh yeah, they had that right away. No, they didn't. You didn't see it? So it's like, maybe these things aren't that accurate. So on 9-11, um, do we remember where we were? And I think probably we all do, right? I was teaching a class. Most of you guys were in, in school, right? You remember pretty well. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I remember, yeah, I remember I was teaching. No problem. I totally remember that. Um, I remember that same day, you had a rock climbing class, and your rock climbing instructor said World War III was starting. Another fine moment. Excellent work to say that. Oh, really? What was it? Oh, it was pretty late. It was like, no, it was like shaking, 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 big chicken. Big chicken. And then, like corned cheese. <laughs> no, it was shaking big, you know. That's my child. <laughs> it was, uh, it was, you know, it was, um. What, what grade were you? See, no, I was. No, I was in 2001. That's good. The classroom I picture myself in is like grade seven or eight. And there's no so, way you were grade seven. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember it when it first happened. I remember learning about it. I remember, I remember Maddie saying, making some reference to Granite Conquer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Also, you also said Ion Cannon charging, which was super good. Nice reference. I thought that was. I could have been prouder. She makes a video game reference. That's great. But yeah, you don't remember, right? And we remember different parts. I don't know what we had for dinner. You remember what we had for dinner, for example. So we remember, do we, do we seem to remember that. Okay, it's a friend of mine, uh, Les Cake, uh, Super Photographer College, Royal University of Newfoundland. He's like teaching a class that day on memory. He's like, oh, here we go, experiment time. I'm making up a survey. I'm giving it out. I'm going to ask people where, what clothes they are wearing, who is sitting beside them, what they would happen at the moment. Also going to ask them about their feelings, their emotions. So there's a picture of Les, right? Yes, he talks like that. Okay, yeah. He's about this, and he's literally, he's this tall. Oh, he's like a little uh, leprechaun. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. 
Okay. <laughs> so the second year cognition class filled out this questionnaire. And then three years later, and by the way, Les at this point was like, I'm not going to ask for permission to do this. I'm just going to do it and submit it ethics later. Because it's not like, well, I better ask the ethics committee first. It'll never get done. It's not allowed. Let's do it, right? Something good's going to come in this silence. So three years later, he has people ask questions. 37% recall stuff. And what are they recalling? They're 37% recall. But they're not recalling who stood beside them, what clothes they're wearing, what they had for breakfast that morning. The stuff we all think we know, what they're recalling is scary, it's all emotional stuff. Uh, I was confused, I was scared, things like that. That's what they were recalling. They were not recalling the hyper-accurate detail because they don't have any. They tried, by the way. I'm not saying people didn't try. They said, oh, yeah, I totally know who I'm sitting beside. Of course, they could have just said, I'm sitting beside someone named Pike Penny or Payne. Maureen versus Newfoundland. 30 or 50% of the people there have those last names. Humber was beside me, right? Right with Tolman and Keel. You know, Dwayne might have been in that class. He was probably in that class. Huh? Okay. Pretty interesting stuff. So we can make some conclusions about episodic and autobiographical memory. Autobiographical memory, we're usually talking about episodic stuff. Um, they tend to be best guesses. And they're usually pretty good guesses. Like, when you guess that Neil's on that list, yeah, it should have been on that list. Of course it wasn't, but it really should have been. So they're usually actually pretty good guesses. Right? And what's, what's my memory done of Paul Henderson scoring the goal in 1972? It's filled something in with a good guess. I did probably hug a little girl beside me. And then it's like, well, what little girl could that be? Well, the first little girl we can remember was Maria. So was put Maria in there. And like, literally, I sit here with the memory, and I swear she's sitting there, and I know she can't have been. It's impossible that Maria was there. She was somewhere in Sudbury watching the same thing. Right? And there's no way she was wearing 1980s 20-year-old girl clothes. Because she was seven and it was 1972. So it's impossible. Yet, my memory's making a good guess. Those guesses are usually pretty damn good. That day, that, I, just, I love that I have this faulty memory for this because it's such a beautiful moment for me to remember this. I, can't, I literally don't know who, who the kid was. I can remember one kid's name from my grade two class at Crestade. Literally one kid's name. No, no, just one. See, I almost said two, but then I realized that kid was another guy I knew from Sudbury. Tracy Brown, it's not for something I remember. Oh, and James Trackus, he was nuts. <laughs> he was nuts, he was just nuts. So, your memory is reconstructive. Just from, that's something you should probably try to remember. And when you argue with somebody about this is right or this is what or this is what happened or this is what happened, what you have to do is realize chances are you're both wrong. <laughs> um, or at least one of you wrong. I've told you guys about how friends of mine and Les was one of those guys on that trip remembering sitting with golfers, or sorry, they're going to a golf trip sitting with wrestlers. And one of them sat beside like Hulk Hogan or something. They can't have all sat beside Hulk Hogan. It was a dash eight. Only one person could have been sitting beside him, but they all claimed they sat beside Hulk Hogan. Somebody must have. 
You just don't remember who, which one it was. It doesn't matter, no. Just as important. Right? All right, questions on this stuff? All right, thanks, guys. podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want. Okay. Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.